Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Something evolving Wherever it may come The world keeps revolving They say the next big thing is here That the revolution's near But to me it seems quite clear That it's all just a little bit of history repeating
3CR 855am, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au, 3CR On Demand, Out of the Pan with Sally. First broadcasting noon through one every Sunday afternoon. Thanks for your company. 3CR proudly broadcasts from the lands of the Kulin Nations, the overlap of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples, and we pay respects to Elders past and present. Hello to any Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander people tuning in from whichever land you are on, and we acknowledge that all the lands were stolen and never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Sally Goldner. I'm your host for Out of the Pan, a show covering pansexual issues, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. And um, we have a great guest who I'll introduce in a minute on the show. There's always lots of ways to get in touch with the program with all the modern means of communication. You can email out of the pan 855 at gmail.com. You can SMS 61456 751215. On Twitter, Mastodon and Blue Sky, look for at Sal Gold said so. And remember, that's the bottom line. And also look for posts on Facebook. My page, Sally Goldner AM, and also at uh, Out of the Pan 3CR 855 AM Melbourne. Remember, any opinions that I express on the show are strictly my own and not those of any organisation with which I have been associated in the past or may still be. And um, opened up today with Shirley Bassey and the Propeller Heads, a little bit of history repeating. Well, is it? Is it not? We're going to find out because... An awesome guest to um, be on the show today, and he's someone who's been on the show before. So that's well, that that, that bit of history is repeating, but it's a nice bit of history to repeat. And he's someone who's an expert on the history of the trans community in Australia, thanks to his great research skills. And it is my pleasure once again to welcome to Out of the Pan, Noah Reisman. Noah, thanks for being with me on a Sunday afternoon. I'm not hearing you. Can you hear me now? That's better, yes. There you go. Sorry, my laptop does this a bit, um, but I said good afternoon, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) It's good to have you with me. I'm just confirming um, which pronouns you use, if any, and um, from which lands you are on as we're on the Zoom waves. Yep. Uh, My pronouns are he, him, and I am also on Kulin country. I'm actually on the borderlands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples. Absolutely, we're um, all part of that particular land today. And not only are you an expert on history, but six weeks ago, um, a book was released um, and launched um, first here in Nam, which I want to talk about um, how it's going since it released. But um, it's um, an amazing one because it is um, a book in paperback and um, softback and other forms, Transgender Australia, a history since 1910. Um, just... Now, perhaps give us, um, pun intended, a little bit of the backstory, the history of the transgender history, how the project came about and where it got to up until the launch of the book. Sure, thanks so much. Um, So my background, I'm a cis gay man, so I'm not part of the trans community. I've always seen myself as an ally, and obviously writing research and writing this was, was part of that allyship. My previous research was on the history of LGBTIQ plus people in the Australian Defence Force. And when I did that project, I interviewed about a dozen trans members, past and present. And one thing that was really clear from those interviews was you couldn't understand the experiences of trans people in just one institution like the Defence Force, 
without knowing the much broader context, the much broader histories, you know, the legal, the medical, the social, everything. Mm -hmm. But that hadn't really been done yet in Australia. Um, I had dinner with a few trans friends one night and asked them, what do you think about a project on Australian trans history? And would you be comfortable with someone like me leading it? And they said, absolutely, we need that. You'd be great. Go for it. And the project sort of grew from there. I got in touch with a few stakeholders, um, some trans, some cis who'd worked with the trans community, put together an advisory group, applied for a grant. We were successful. And yeah, the project sort of began in a small stage in 2017, and then it really sort of kicked off in 2018. And the book is only one of many other sort of outputs from the project that's um, been yeah trying to tell the history of trans people on this continent for the last hundred some odd years. Yeah, which, um, you know, so there, there's a long, there is, um, again, pun intended, a history to the history, but it has come about. We call that historiography. A historiography. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll practice my pronunciation when I get home um, on that one. And, you know, seriously, it is, a, it's a, it is a good thing. And I'm, you know, look, I'm glad you did it. And I I'm certainly agree with those trans people who said we need this. And there's lots of reasons it's been erased that... Perhaps even although it's surfacing today, there's that generation gap. And, you know, to me, as a 58-year-old, it's awesome that younger trans people are able to be out earlier. But sometimes I do feel a little bit of frustration that perhaps they don't understand the stories of older trans people and what what people have been through and perhaps don't quite understand a lot of things. So I think there's, you know, certainly lots of bridge building that the book um, um, has the potential to do. But it's... Um, bringing us up to that start, you mentioned you started at 1910 and it's probably worth really going through that point with that, as that's where you decided to delve in in detail. Tell us about that. Sure, and actually, uh, I might, if you don't mind, sure. say something about what you said before about, because it's really interesting. So oral histories were a huge driver of the book. I mean, obviously not the early bits talking about 1910, but from the 50s onwards and especially the 70s onwards, a lot of it came from oral histories. And it's really interesting because what you just said, I, I interviewed 105 people, um, age range from about 20 through to 89 years young. Wow. And quite a few of the, not all, but quite a few of the old people actually expressed something similar to what you just said. This sort of sense that they felt like their experiences were being erased or that their experiences and what they had done were being invalidated. And I mean, some... Uh, I, I'm trying to be very cautious here because I think mm -hmm. that you know, a lot of this, I think, my, is through misunderstandings where I feel like dialogue actually in conversations resolves this. And unfortunately, social media isn't a good space for that. Mm -hmm. But I, a lot of them, like the generation gap certainly was something that felt real by a lot of the older people. And, you know, some people identified with terms that are now generally considered outdated. And I mm -hmm. talk a little bit about this in the book about how, you know, while we do our best to promote best practice if someone uses a term that for them was really important as part mm -hmm. of their identity formation we've got to respect that and sort of that's their self-identity and there's sort of have been clashes when some people don't want to accept that from another person and that makes them feel disconnected and look it's a whole nother conversation and i actually do touch on it a little bit in both the preface of the book and actually at the very end of the book i don't want to give spoilers but i actually do touch on this issue at the very end of the book um, about, you know, we've seen a lot more new understandings of gender and gender mm. diversity, especially in the last 10 years. And that's yes. absolutely amazing. But I, for some of the older trans people, they felt like this sort of 
adding of new categories or adding of new labels was somehow erasing them when that's not what's meant to happen. It's meant to be, you know, just adding new categories or adding new understandings isn't meant to erase someone else's, but some people felt that way. And I mean, I think that's something that, that should be discussed. And again, I think dialogue and conversation are a way to bridge that. I don't know if you want to keep talking about that or if you want me to go back to your actual question. Just when you raised that, I just thought that was something that actually really resonated while researching the book. Look, I'm going to go with my gut and talk about it because I remember a few years ago, it would have been around the late 2010s where some media guidelines were put out and it said you can't use the word transsexual. Now, you know, a lot of older people, that's the word they had. That's what gave them a light bulb moment. Um, it wasn't mine. I'll just I'll say it wasn't mine personally, and I respect that. And I felt very disappointed that there hadn't been a consultation with a range of trans people of all ages, which could have prevented that. Um, the other side of the coin, I want to you know give praise to Cody Smith, who, amongst many things, identifies as non-binary and as of intersex experience, lives in um, what is now known as Canberra, and. I remember this because it was the last session of the 2020 Better Together conference, the last big queer conference before the two years of hell we all had. And they said, you know, the more terms we've got, the better, because people can find their term. And, you know, I'm I'm a believer in abundance. You know, there's room for everyone. And so I don't think we should, you know, no, no, no one should be asked to stop using a term. Sure, it might fade over time and less people use it, but it's got to be everyone's individual choices to what term they use. I, I'm very passionate about that for sure yeah i always say when i'm talking to people about it i say look i think it's good to promote what we might call best practice Mm. and i think it would be good to say best practice especially if you're not identifying as such it Mm. probably is best to avoid words like transsexual but if someone's self-identified this is the way i always at least when i talk about this with people you know we promote best practice language but if someone self-identifies it is not our place to police how someone self-identifies and we have to respect that and affirm that that's sort of the, the approach that, or the way that i frame it um oh god you said something else that i thought was really i was about to respond to and i've already forgotten what i was going to say the abundance um, thing <laughs> abundance Sorry? that you know the more labels we've got the more oh yeah so i touch on this in the intro and then the conclusion to the book um i think one of the reasons why people feel that way or one of the challenges i suppose is historically it tended to be doctors and psychiatrists Mm. where a lot of this language of trans came from and they would be defining defining but also deciding who was and so one of the things was over time if we look at especially let's say the 1950s Mm. the 1950s when christine jurgensen the american gi transitions and it makes global headlines including in australia this is really important for trans people because for trans people a lot of them see ah that's me or you know and it gives them this word this word that at the time they hadn't heard before transsexual and they're like that's a word that explains me but then so in that sense it can be empowering like in that sense having a word having a language can be really empowering but then there's this flip side to it of then the doctors especially psychiatrists decide who is Mm. and when you decide who is you are also inherently deciding who is not Mm -hmm. and that is exclusionary and so this I, I think this history of 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 a sort of deciding who is and who is not has these sort of resonances today that having new labels is a way to create more is is I suppose mm. if that's a word but at the same time I think just that history of throwing something in and then saying therefore others are not might 
accident might trigger. Maybe trigger is not quite the right word, but I think that might be what then makes some people a bit a bit worried about that. And there's a concept that I talk about briefly in the introduction, and again bring back in the conclusion. Oh my God, I'm forgetting this. Uh, Surya Munro was one of the scholars um, from overseas. It was Surya Munro and someone else. I'm uh, already forgetting who, but they have this concept they call gender pluralism. And gender pluralism is about, again, it's about not erasing existing categories. So man, woman, transgender, mm. if you want to, like, it's just about adding more and seeing, and it's not meant to be a zero sum game. But unfortunately, and I get why, because trans people have been so excluded from history that like the little that has been there, if you suddenly see all these new categories, I can understand why you might feel like you're being erased, mm. but it's not, it doesn't have to be that way. I suppose is what I'm saying. It's, it's a really complex conversation. That's, and I acknowledge that. And I, again, I think unfortunately this generation gap or often it's more of a perceived generation gap than mm, an actual like one. Yeah. Is, is really social media doesn't help. Well, definitely, definitely not on that front. And I think the thing is, I'll, to finish this little sub-conversation up, you know, I acknowledge that people's feelings and emotions are strong, given the hell that at least 99.8% of trans people around the world over over time, particularly in Western cultures, um, which we also need to talk about, um, or so-called Western cultures have gone through. And I think that those emotions need to be acknowledged and how we find a way to hold space for that and at the same time hold space for each other. Yes, that is complex, um, to be fair. But that, um, you know, brings us back that things have developed over time. Nine, the 1910 question, let's um, nail that one down. That's a really good segue to the 1910 quest, uh, question because um, the 1910 question, and I acknowledge this in the book as well, is a very Western-oriented marker. So first off, I make very clear in the book, and I always say this in interviews, I am in no way, shape, or form trying to deny the existence of gender diversity before 1910. We know that there's been gender diversity on this continent since time immemorial, sister girls, brother boys, and gender diverse trans mob out there. Um, the reason for 1910, though, is that's the year that the German sexologist Magnus Hirschfeld publishes a book. And again, it's an outdated term now, but mm -hmm. I'm using it in a discursive context called Transvestites, the Erotic Desire to Crossdress. And I've got to say, by the way, I look, again, I know I acknowledge the term is outdated now. That book is really good and like mm. still relevant now. Like Hirschfeld, the whole book, he he what he does is he he's the first to separate gender diversity or trans from sexuality. Yep. He's the first to see them as something different. But also in the book, he's talking about all these different reasons why people have diverse gender expressions. Like it's really worth a read. But that is the beginning of the language of trans. And so look, obviously that book appears in 1910 the first reference to trans that i found transvestites that i found in australia was in a newspaper in 1912 it's not really till the 30s though that you begin to see the language slowly creeping into australia but because that's the beginning of the language of trans at least in the west that's why i chose that as the starting point for the book it's not to deny anything before mm. but as I say, every history needs a starting point, and just for this particular one to contain the project, that was the starting point I chose. Fair enough, yeah. Just quickly, we've had a couple of comments in as I'm chatting with Noah Reisman on um, the history of trans in Australia. Um, Kayleen has come in and said, likes the extra labels personally and raises a good point. Quote, one of the problems of medicalisation is that it can exclude people who can't afford or physically undergo those medical procedures. So that's 
um, really good. Amen, Kayleen. Lovely to hear from you. Indeed. Um, Seconding that. And um, the other comment has come in on the emails out of the pan855 at gmail.com from um, Jenny, another of our awesome um, 3CR listeners, because remember, we don't have regular listeners. We just have awesome ones. And... um, I am trying to just get that email to come up, and of course, it doesn't want to. Quote, I do agree there's now a generation gap, and as your guest said, some elders don't even like new colours in the rainbow flag either. Word query is a case in point two. Why do some people think the younger generations are spoiled and erasing history and when words have new meaning now for them? Some ugly stereotypes are created in our community thoughts. Yeah. Um, you know, um, you know, I don't think the younger generation are spoiled. I mean, I... I mean, yes, they're out earlier, which is great. The thing is, you know, having to listen to all this, you know, malarkey that we know exists in mainstream media and, you know, loud, loud shouty voices who don't really represent too many people, uh, I don't know if, that, you know, that's spoiled. So that's just a couple of, um, you know, sort of quest, um, comments we've had in there. If you want to bounce off them, you can, or we can uh, move um, move on, move in closer to now from 1910. Just, just say it, it's... This is the thing that came across, you know, again, not every interview, just a small number of interviews. And and it is this sense that, look, I, I don't want to downplay the challenges young people have today because there are a lot of challenges. But I think there is this, this it's a reality of history that it still is easy er emphasis on the er on the er mm. than it was in the past. And I think that for some of the people I interviewed, there was this, I, I think, misguided, politely, I say misguided channeling of of a bit of anger Mm. at maybe them thinking that younger people don't realize necessarily how much harder they had it and again i don't think that these are irreconcilable points i think like through dialogue and conversation Mm. actually there would be this realization that yeah there's new challenges today let's say or different challenges but that doesn't make them any less important and also an acknowledgement of the path and this is what i have found where when you bring the generations together that's why I always say perceived generation gap, because I just think it's because there's a lack of dialogue, I guess is what I'm getting at. I think you've hit a really good point. You know, it's sort of, we'll borrow, borrow from the polyam communities, communicate, 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 and if that hasn't worked, do it again and do it differently or something like that. <laughs> so let's move forward from 1910, because, I mean, obviously things happened around the world, although, you know, there were you know, challenging times for the world as a whole with the Great Depression and then World War Two and, well, World War One. if we're starting from 1910, which may have slowed things down. But, and so, you know, I mean, you know, you mentioned Christine Jorgensen, the American GI who came back from Europe after ha- completing um, what we'd now, after surgery. So I might just touch a little, what happened, so what's a couple of things that might have, give us some teasers, say from about 1910 to 1952, and um, what was going on there and underneath all that world history stuff? Sure. Well, well, teasers, what I do in this, that's primarily the first chapter, is it looks a lot at examples that you found in media here in Australia of people arrested or, well, usually arrested. Occasionally it wasn't arrested, but people who were caught dressing in a gender other than that assumed sex at birth, the sort of stereotypical gender. And it sort of look at these questions of why these people were dressing and imagining the possibility that maybe they were trans but we're very cautious not to apply a label that a didn't exist then and b we don't know if the person did identify that way but that language of trans sort of slowly creeps into australian psychology in the 1930s so you begin to see a small number of um psychologists using the term and there's even a case from perth in 1937 that got written up in a medical journal 
of WA talking about what they called a case of transvestitism. And mm-hmm. so you slowly see the language coming to Australia by the 30s, but it is really after the Second World War in the wake of Christine Jurgensen and also the wake of doctors like Harry Benjamin from the United States actually writing about what mm-hmm. was called at the time transsexualism that you, you see a more of an awareness here. And also you begin to see doctors, especially from the 60s onwards in Australia, starting to work with clients who are trans. And again, they apply a very rigid medical model, mm. a very rigid to be trans means you believe that you were born in the wrong body, that you want hormones, you want gender surgery, and that you will then disappear quietly into society. Like literally, I'm very simplifying, but that was basically, if you well, were not that, you were not trans. Um, but at the same time, so you've got this sort of medical model. And again, it, it's double double sword. I mean, for, mm. for people who do fit that, there's a finally an opportunity to affirm their gender, like something that didn't exist before. But again, there's that flip side. If you don't fit that strict model, then you're excluded Mm. and you still have challenges. Um, The 50s, 60s is also when you have, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, actually in Brisbane as well, there's quite a bit of of what's then called the camp scene. And one thing that I really love is camp is kind of like the way I describe it. It's kind of an old school word for what we might now use queer. Like it actually wasn't just about it wasn't it was sort of you're non-gender and or sexually normative and it didn't really put a label on where in the alphabet you were you were just camp and so you had this sort of blending of gender and sexual diversity people hanging out at parties going to the same bars especially in bits of sydney and then in darlinghurst and it was all sort of mixed together and it worked well it was illegal but for the for the subculture it worked let's say um but then by the 70s is when you begin to see more clearly distinguishing trans let's say subcultures separate from this broader camp subculture definitely definitely true well you know it's a good point that you say there that um you know trans you know sort of um camp you know in a way it's sort of it's queer and it's it's also genderqueer and, and big inverted commas coming up for outdated language, big inverted commas, effeminate gay men is in inverted commas is what we often describe, think of when we think of camp. But I like, I like that one as well. It's a good, it's a, it's, it's good, thoughtful stuff. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way until I started interviewing a few trans people who are part of that subculture, because I had always been under the impression, and I admit this even as a historian, that camp was the word for gay, because the word gay was an import for the United States. And it came to Australia in the 1970s. So I was always under the impression that camp was essentially what we now call gay. But it was through interviewing a few of these trans people who were part of the camp scene and then were telling about it and also reading a bit about it and things like Carlotta's autobiography and a few others. You know, like, actually, it was everything. It wasn't just gay men. It was sort of everything in this one word. Um, And so I admit that was an ignorance on my part before I started doing this research. Yeah, no, fair call. It's a leading, it's a reasonable segue to another question we've had from Jenny. Um, quote, did the author have any challenges that a cis gay man wrote the book instead of a trans person, despite his extraordinary allyship? End quote. End question. Oh, no, that is such a good question. Thank you, Jenny. Um, I did, and I don't say this in a bad way. Like, I think they were legit challenges. Um, early on, and I've actually written about a little bit of it in the preface of the book. Early on, um, there in my information letter, there was a word that I had used that I did not realize was associated with TERFs, um, huh. because historically it hadn't been. Historically, it hadn't been associated with TERFs, and I had come across it in a few places, and this might sound weird. Uh, it was a noun, and I needed a noun. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a grammar 
bit of a grammar error. So like, right, yeah. and anyway, one trans person who read the information letter like got really angry at me and like you know threatened to derail the project and was like you're a turf because you've used this word blah, blah, blah. and i had no idea and we did meet up and i'm grateful that person met up with me um really ripped my head off which was fair enough um and then when i was allowed to talk i explained i said look i'm really sorry i did not know this is a learning experience for me and i'm glad you told me and i will not use that word again and i've learned from this and i explained why i used it but also understood and actually things got better from there and it was fine but that was a really important learning experience for me about the importance of language um and doing our best but also about owning my mistakes like it was my like on the one hand i didn't know and she accepted that but she also said but if you're working in the space you should know and that was a fair point as well um that was one example another example was um later on down the track there was a trans person who who was sort of part of a group and i was in touch with a few of them and I'd already interviewed three of the people in that group. And this one person didn't realize at the time that she agreed to an interview that I was cis and then COVID happened, things got delayed, blah, blah, blah. And then when we were sort of coming out of lockdowns and then I was chasing up about an interview, she then knew that I was cis and she was very unhappy about the idea of a cis guy doing this research. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, that's, you know, that's fine. I respect that. If you're not interested, like, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not forcing anyone to participate in an interview. I, I respect that. I get that. Um, but she went a little bit, she was also said, I don't like the idea of a cis guy profiting off our stories. And I did say to her, I'm like, well, look, um, let me tell you, we don't really profit in academic publishing. I can, I can tell you that mm-hmm. we don't really make money. And in fact, we actually have to pay to get the stuff published. I'd be very happy to have a conversation with you about this. She didn't want to have a conversation. And again, that's that's fine. That's her prerogative. I respect that. She told her friends who I'd already interviewed about this, and then they got in touch with me, and they were, they were concerned. And again, fair enough. And I said the same thing to them in an email. I said, we don't actually really profit off academic publishing, but, and in fact, I've had to pay for the, for the publishing, although I do have a grant that's covered that. Would you be up for a conversation? They were up for a conversation. We had a conversation and it was a really good and a really important conversation. Mm -hmm. And in that conversation, I explained all this to them. They listened, they explained where they were coming from. And then one of them said, and this this really resonated, they said, said, look, we understand. And also we understand, you know, you're doing the time to do this work and and therefore obviously there needs to be a trade off, et cetera. They said, but what if it's an accidental bestseller? And I was just like, Look, that would be absolutely amazing mm. for an accidental bestseller, but I don't think that's going to happen. And then she said to me, the trauma cleaner. And then I went, oh, because for those listeners who don't know, the trauma cleaner, which is about trans woman Sandra Panghurst, was mm. written by a cis person. Mm-hmm. And it did make a lot of money. And from my understanding, Sandra did not see much, if any, of that money. Mm. So when they explained that to me, that's when it clicked. And I was like, got it. So... I pledged them in there and I've wrote letters and I've even written it into the book that any profits that come from this book, and I still don't expect many, but it doesn't matter, are being donated to trans charities because I'm not out to make money off the community. I'm not out to do that. Um, But again, though, so sorry, that was a really long answer to your question. But those were just two examples of where I did come across challenges. In those cases, we were able to have conversations, we were able to have dialogue, and that because everyone was coming from goodwill, that resolved these and i'm really glad 
Um, and I guess that's just always been my approach is conversations where possible. Yep. No, bang on on both counts. And um, Jenny has bounced back and then we'll come back. We'll get back to the history part of it. Jenny, quote, I greatly appreciate the author's response. We can learn a lot from his very thoughtful attitude. He sounds amazing, Jen. Oh, Jenny, that's very kind. Yeah, and no, look, I think you've done some, you know, great allyship. You've, you know, you know, sort of held space and used privilege for listing, and that's something we can all do, myself included, in the areas that I have privilege. So we got up to about, um, we were sneaking into the 1970s, I think. Um, yes, we were, yes. And um, as we sort of um, you know, sneak our way back to them, and we, that's right, the, we'll call, call it the slightly post camp era or something, what was going on in the 70s um, in, in the trans history of Australia, um, written by my guest, Noah Risman. Sure. So in the 70s, a few things. First, I won't go too much more down the medical line, but that is when you begin to see more formalization of medical processes and medical clinics. And again, that comes with good things and bad things, which I've already touched on. But that sort of really formalizes in the 70s. The other thing you begin to see in 70s is, well, actually, it starts a bit in the 60s, is the emergence of the showgirl scene, Mm -hmm. um, first in Sydney and then um, to a lesser extent in other areas. And Again, that's a site that actually is a site of visibility and it is a site of opportunity for some trans people. And it's one of the few sites of visibility and opportunity at the time. The 70s is also when you begin to see on a small scale the first trans organizations in Australia. So Seahorse is founded in Sydney by Rosemary Langton in 1971. And Seahorse then and now is still primarily for, for dressers, people who tend to identify with their sex assigned at birth, but like to live and dress part-time, let's say, in another gender. For a lot of trans people over time, especially because Seahorse for, let's say, two decades was sort of like, well, not the only, but in many, probably the close to the only organization available. Um, Seahorse, for some people, I often say was sort of like a transition in their transition that like, you know, a lot of people were members of Seahorse and did identify that way, but then over time realized, like, no, this is me full time, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so, but, and so Seahorse was a very important for a lot of people. It's still around today in Victoria nice. and New South Wales and Queensland. Um, so that's founded in the 70s. In the late 70s, you begin to see the first support groups for trans, like trans people who desired or had gender affirmation surgery. There's a small one in Adelaide founded, there's one in Melbourne founded, and there's one in Sydney. And that one in Sydney founded by Nolina Tame sometime around 1978, I can't get the exact year, but it was probably 1978. That was the Australian Transsexual Association. And in the early 80s, Roberta Perkins becomes secretary of that group. And Roberta sort of transforms it from more than just a social and support group into being a bit of an activist group. And then, so in the early 80s is when you begin to see a bit a bit of, um, on a small scale, trans activism. And it does pay some dividends in Sydney because through Roberta's activism, mm. she's secure funding and they get Tiresias House set up in 1983. And that's the present day gender center. So they're celebrating their 40th birthday this year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, big, um, yeah, big woohoo for the gender center and um, big blessings for Roberta Perkins. What a pioneer. She was for people, yeah. for trans people and um, se- um, sex workers as well, of course. Um, of course and that's what I was about to mention is the mm. one other thing that sort of emerges. Again, was happening before the 70s, but by the 70s, it's much more visible, let's say, is the sex worker 
experience the sex worker scene um in melbourne it sort of settles down by greve street and st kilda for trans people in sydney it's sort of from the oral histories i did in the sort of 60s it was in paddington and it sort of shifts to darlinghurst by the 70s and around um oh my god i forgot the name of the street i think it was darley street first but then in 1983 there's what's called the battle of darlow where basically the police go on this massive roundup of sex workers, including trans sex workers. And that's in response to a lot of locals' complaints. And after the Battle of Darlow, the trans sex worker scene shifts to sort of Premier Lane and William Street in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And that's that becomes the main trans sex worker space from the 80s on until even in the early 2000s. It's only really gentrification of the internet that sort of kill it off. Mm. Um yeah, so sorry, that was the other big theme in the 70s is sort of much more visibility around trans workers. Yeah, no, and a very important point that often gets mm. overlooked, um, you know, sort of in in the history of our communities, um, you know, because there was probably shame dumped on all, you know, stereotypes and shame dumped on trans people about sex work. And of course, sex work is work. And also want to acknowledge um, 17th of December is the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers um, coming up in around five weeks time. So yeah, there's good points to come out of the 70s. And then we're progressing into the, well, the puffed sleeve 80s for tra- for those identifying in feminine attire. Um, and that, of course, could be anyone. Oh, if trans men want to wear um, puffed sleeves, that's their call too, but it's not, oh, it's not mine. Seahorse ladies love their puffed sleeves from some of the pictures I've seen. <laughs> they Sorry, see- from the, some of the pictures I've seen, seahorse ladies love the puffed sleeves. Oh, look, I've been known to do some 80s puffed Can sleeves. Can you hear me still? Yeah, yeah, all clear. Yeah. Um, so we've gone. We're into oh, the eighties, yeah, yeah, and then um, we we keep moving. You know, we sort of we begin. What happens next? It's, it's sort of um, um, what Katie, did, what Katie and um, 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 and um, Kim of any gender did next. So the eighties and the nineties, at least the way I focused in the book, is that's when you see more activism pushing for recognition of people and their affirmed genders, and also anti discrimination. And one of the challenges. Um, both writing it, but also just in general, I suppose, at the time for the activists, is almost all of the laws relating to trans people, almost all of them, are state and territory based, which means that you've got different activist groups in each state and territory, and they're all getting progress, let's say, at different times. But it is in 1984, South Australia is the Mm. first state to adopt anti-discrimination for at least some trans people, those who had surgery. And South Australia is also the first state in 1988 to adopt recognition um, of trans people in their firm gender. Um, and then from the 1991, the ACT does this and sort of gradually all the other states and territories are doing this through the 90s into the very beginning of the 2000s. So that's sort of at least the way I'm telling the history, like I sort of focus the 80s and 90s on the these activists and their pushes for legal recognition, which they've been doing as early as the 70s, like it, it actually sort of starts in the 70s and it does get national attention, interestingly, in the late 70s and early 80s. But the national um, meetings of the attorneys general keep sort of putting it. It's a standing item on their meetings every month mm. is this question of gender recognition. But they kept putting in the two hard basket and this hope that there would be a national approach falls apart and only South Australia goes ahead with it. Why South Australia at first is really, I think, quite interesting one is they had a really progressive Labour Party politician, Barbara Weiss, who mm-hmm. she really pushed this. She was such a huge ally 
in getting this on their agenda. And when they were doing anti-discrimination reform, a sort of a comprehensive gender, uh, sorry, a comprehensive anti-discrimination law in 84, she made sure that it included, again, to use the language of the time, transsexuals. Yeah. The reason that they were the first to adopt recognition actually has to do with a case of an intersex baby that was born earlier in the 80s. And this intersex baby, we know that at the time, and we know intersex activists are fighting against this uh, about surgeries forced on on, um, uh, non-medically necessary surgeries forced on intersex children. But there was a case of an intersex baby in the early 80s, and this got media all across the country, who had been born, the birth certificate was issued, one gender then they performed surgery to make the baby the other gender and they couldn't change the birth certificate and this got national attention and then eventually finally the south australian attorney general intervened and managed to change the the gender marker on the birth certificate and so a few years later when their south australia had this case in their mind now look that case is very problematic i'm not trying to you know mm-hmm. take away from that but because of that case they were the state that was sort of like, we need a mechanism to allow people to change their genders. And that first legislation both applied to trans adults, but also for intersex babies. It was the other, that was the reason why South Australia was the first to adopt it. Wow. I, I did. Oh, see, there you go. We can always keep learning. And I've just learned something there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do feel in a sense, as much as, as you say, the case was problematic and it's, you know, the situation of, um, pe- people with variation of sex characteristics is, you know, such a, a challenging one, and you know their, you know, legal struggles are only, you know, in Australia. With, well, June June this year, the ACT passed its great laws, and also acknowledging last Wednesday was International Intersex Day of Solidarity. I feel, in a sense, then a, a sense of of a debt of gratitude to um, our intersex cousins, if I can use that term for for doing that. Because, and the other thing I always thought, I always thought it was because Don Dunstan, who was there's been various. I don't want to you know, get into label debates. He's been called gay or and bisexual. I think over time, um, I thought um, he might have played a part in it um, and possibly did, but I didn't know about that. The part you just described. See, there we go. That's why we need um, this this book, um, so we we all can learn um, from um, transgender Australia history then. since 1910. Yeah, he wasn't premier by then, and really, it was actually Barbara Weiss. She was the Labour person who really pushed this stuff. Um, I've not met her. I know she's still around today. Um, she, I got it. it. The other interesting thing when looking at South Australia is the other thing I think is when looking at the 1990s, for instance, in all of the, in especially in Queensland, Victoria, and in New South Wales, the 90s is when you see sort of both tensions, but eventually alliances between gay and lesbian and trans groups, mm. where there's a bit of division, there's a bit of, uh, in Victoria, not so much fight. There is a bit of division in Victoria, but look, it, it, in the end, you do get a politics of solidarity by the end of the decade. Mm. But South Australia is very early on one to sort of, you don't see those divisions. Like the trans people are always sort of working with the gay and lesbian people in South Australia. I think part of that has to do with the personalities. I think part of that has to do with it was a smaller state. Mm-hmm. But part of it was also that there had been all these other reforms that happened already in South Australia that they didn't really, there wasn't this need for the activism. Oh, I, I still don't want to put it quite that way. Just It seemed like because of reforms that already happened in South Australia, that there was it was much easier very quickly to have a politics of solidarity and support. Whereas in the other states and territories, there are gay and lesbian activists after A, and trans activists after B, and it takes a little bit of time for them to realize we should bring A and B together and work together. 
but that does settle by the sort of early 2000s. Well, well, yeah, very true. And I mean, you know, look, the fact that I, I might say that South Australia at least had something on the board made it easier. But when you sort of feel like you're starting from minus minus infinity or something, as trans people do, and again, acknowledging people with variation of sex characteristics, um, sometimes you feel like you're being left out. So I think that, you know, that would make make a difference. So yeah, that um, the twenty first century arrives, um, and uh, um, uh, again, what happens next? <laughs> so, twenty first century. I think by then you do have what I always call the first round of birth certificate reform. So, mm. when people who had had gender affirmation yeah. surgery can change the birth certificates, the twenty first century is when you begin to see more visible sister girl and then brother boy activism. Yeah. So, I do have a chapter in the book that focuses specifically on Black, Indigenous, and people of color's cool. experiences. So, I both weave them across the book and have a distinct chapter. And it, that chapter does talk about you know people's experiences growing up in Aboriginal communities based on oral interviews and some you know Fafafine and Maori people's experiences when they come to Australia. Um, and then as we get to the 2000s, also other people of color. But it really, in terms of activism or organizations and visibility, that doesn't really emerge until the 90s. And in the 90s, there's a few um, sister girl elders, um, one of whom has since passed, so I'm not going to say her name, but who really start organizing sister girls nationally. And that actually comes a lot out of the um, HIV sector. It's actually from AFEO, the Australian Federation of AIDS Organizations, that you begin to see sister girl activism. And then ACON, for instance, uh, in New South Wales, hires Kuncha Brown as their first sister girl officer in 1999. So one of the stories of the new millennium is, is... visibility of sister girls and then by the 2010s brother boys as well um, and other gender diverse trans mob it's also when as more people of color more multicultural people are finally in australia you also begin to see some organizations like um salam namaste is a group founded in sydney by a trans indian person um Mm. in the 2000s most of the groups that you see that are for um multicultural or non-white, let's say, backgrounds are the sort of LGBTIQ mix. You don't tend to see trans-specific groups except for the sister girls and the brother boys. Um, But that's one change in the new millennium. Another is, of course, the more, well, not just more, like the beginnings of actually working with trans children and young people. So the Children's Hospital here in Melbourne has their first young person client in 2003. And that really takes off, as we know, in the next decade. But it begins... Um, and then, of course, you also get towards by the teens. So that this is sort of the last two chapters. But yeah. uh, oh, sorry, I also describe the 2000s as a time of a bit of actually divisions within trans groups mm. and the community. But so, a smile has just come on Sally's face for all the listeners. Yeah, because that's when a lot of these questions about who is and who is not trans sort of come to a head within the community. It begins in the 90s in Sydney. There are some huge huge fights in Sydney's trans community in the 1990s. They, those same fights happen on a smaller scale in the other States in the two thousands. And there are those who, who are trans people and who, who really align themselves with that medical model. And then there are those who take the more social constructivist, you know, gender is a social construct and binaries are not real. And these debates are sort of going on 
in the 2000s and you see the rise of new trans groups in the 2000s and at first they're sort of rivaling each other yes. but again by the teens a lot of this settles down and there's acceptance of trans as an umbrella and there being diverse experiences of what it means to be trans and also more of an acceptance of having more groups is not a bad thing just because my group is for let's say trans men doesn't take away from another group that's for trans women it means like we are all trans but this is a group that's focusing primarily on that and that's totally fine so that's sort of sorry that's the sort of i went all around circles there but that i think is the the big dominant story of the 2000s is sort of there's more diversity and at first there's kind of fights over that diversity but then it settles down to the sort of recognition of okay diversity is a good thing <laughs> like, like that's a good thing and and we don't have to take away from each other by being diverse absolutely well that's a that's a good um sort of um you know sort of um not a sort of a, a great point to make and um you know one of the things we've had another question is which sort of brings us to the 2010s 2020s and into into the future to uh, marty um one more from jenny um one last question for the author noah risman what does he think of people like Laverne Cox and even Caitlyn Jenner have been so who have been so popular and mainstream as celebrities in that pop culture zeitgeist now? End question. It's a great question. Look, and first of all, I I answer this as an outsider, so um, I'm sure trans people would probably have a different perspective. Um, visibility has been so important always, um, and the the until the 2010s, especially. There was, it was harder to find the visibility, but visibility is hugely important. And I know 2014, and I sort of framed the introduction of the book around this, is when Time Magazine said it was a trans tipping point, mm-hmm. where basically trans visibility and acceptance had reached a level that probably a majority, at least in the West, was more pro-trans rights than who were against it. I do genuinely think that's true. And I think one of the reasons for this backlash that's horrible now is because they're losing the the anti-trans people is why they're so loud unfortunately Mm. um but figures like laverne cox and even caitlin jenner are really important to that but i guess it does get complicated or messy because we know caitlin jenner has also expressed some quite problematic views and then that also makes her someone that people who share those problematic views can point to and say oh well this trans person supports it so i think we always have to be cautious when not putting anyone up on a pedestal and I don't want to say all visibility is good visibility. Mm. Um, so, but I mean, I don't know, Sally, what do you think? Because actually, I think it does get messy. But obviously, I mean, I think what Caitlyn Jenner did for trans visibility before her problematic views came out is unprecedented, unparalleled. Like it really did, I think, shift so many attitudes. But then it came out afterwards and actually just got some quite problematic views. How do you, how do we balance these things? I don't actually have an yeah. answer. What do you think, Sally? I think it's a fair point. I mean, you know, look, um, you know, when you are that visible person, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Um, and I think I will, um, you know, sort of use personal experience here. There's this expectation that you have to be perfect on diversity and not have any blocks and be a perfect leader. And it is that minority perfection thing as well. And I don't excuse Caitlin Jenner's shortcomings. And I'm very, very sure that I have my blocks that I'm constantly working on um and i think the thing that we need to learn to do maybe is to learn to listen um and sort of get more information that might help us unblock ourselves and you know look i've you know look i'm i won't name names but i've had my beefs with 
certain trans people and it's frustrating, um, both prominent ones around the world and um, some who are somewhat prominent in Victoria and or Australia. And then we need to try to come at this with kindness and compassion that, you know, again, 99.8% at least of trans people have faced a degree of trauma. And even if, you know, magically, you know, there's not, I'm still yet to meet one trans person who as soon as they knew they were trans in a cis-dominated world said, I'm perfectly happy and I've got 100% support around me and my life's perfect. So even that one little moment of self-doubt or isolation, even if you didn't get any external transphobia, it can still cause damage. And I think maybe then, you know, trying to come at it with a, a place of compassion, and it goes back to what you mentioned earlier about you used a, a gender-critical type of word. Well, again, 8 billion humans make mistakes, so long as you can make them the same mistake once and learn and prevent it happening again, which is what you did. And I think that we, you know, could all be kinder, and you know, maybe I need to be kinder to myself as well, and we all can be kinder to ourselves. You know, just um, it's that willingness to learn, and it's not easy when there's deep emotions running. I think might be, um, you know, part of the issue there. Um, there's my, you know, eleven cents, including GST. Um, you know, sort of um, to um, to to throw an answer into that. We are um, getting near the end of the conversation. Um, you know, with only a few minutes left on out of the pan. Freedom of species coming up at one o'clock. Talking all things animal advocacy, vegan and vegetarian, and. Um, no, I just um, probably worth um, checking in any final thoughts, comments, questions, or as we love them. Oh, sorry, one more message in from Jenny um, about how things need to be improved on the lack of diversity of prominent trans people who aren't white in Australia compared to the US is a real issue. Um, so, yeah, you made a great point there. Um, and representation is always complex. And Jen, thanks you also for your time and your work. And I've got to say it, Kayleen says hi. Um, and... Um, um, freedom of species. Just before, um, while we get a chance, um, Meg is covering vegan 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 January, which I think is vegan January in an interview with Jackie. So, um, as always, freedom of species um, always full of great information. Keep it locked on three CR eight five five AM three CR digital three CR dot org dot au three CR on demand. Uh, no, as I say, just about out of time um, before freedom of species come in. Um, so, just we will take it to any final um, thoughts. Whoops. Break up. Um, still not clear. Oh, no. Right at the end, damn it. No, it's still, still now nothing. Sorry. And Trump decided to misbehave, but at the very end, uh, still no, can't hear me. Just now, where you can't. Just where you came in and said the very end was where we, um, we uh, got it. There. All I said was my laptop decides to misbehave at the very end. Um, so I guess, look, um, in the preface of the book, one what I actually start with is that one theme that permeated almost every interview I did was this sense that why people wanted this history told was so that people would understand that trans people have always been here. Um and the other big thing that stood out from the interviews was this really wanting, again, the current generations to, to learn from the history and hopefully be able to apply that history towards their present and towards empowering for the future. And, and I don't say that in a way of like I actually from my experience of trans young people, they really want to learn the history. So I actually think 
that's actually a good thing. So, I mean, I don't know where I was going with that. Like, I guess that's my final thought is I think we can all learn from history. This book, I do in no way, shape or form is the end. And like, oh, story told the end. No, no, no. I like to think that this is just part of a process of history telling, of storytelling, and that there's many more trans histories out there that other scholars and trans scholars included in that are going to keep on writing in the future. Um, there you go. That's my final. I'm glad I, that we got sound back just in time to get that through. It all worked. We didn't think we'd cover an hour, but we did. There was so much to cover, and it all worked perfectly. And no, I... I will say for me, I think you, you do allyship really, really well for, for the trans community. We, you put your skills in and use your privilege um, in a way that benefits other people. As I always say, use your privilege for good and not evil purposes, Batpan, and you've done it. Um, no, always a pleasure to have you on out of the pan on 3CR. I'd better get out of here and make way for Freedom of Species. Hang on to the Zoom for just a second. And we'll take it out um, with yet another song with history in the title um, for Australasians, um, Aotearoa and um, this big island, Split Ends, History Never Repeats. Um, well, we, if you read Noah's book, you might find out whether it does or it doesn't, or it's a non-binary option. <laughs> Thanks, Noah <laughs> Risman. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in to Out of the Pan. I'm Sally Goldner. Catch you next week. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.